Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 4 on page 1022. In your pew Bibles, we'll read some verses 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 44. Remember from two weeks ago, Christ has just preached that sermon in Nazareth where he said that God sent him to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom to those who are oppressed indeed to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Now Luke goes on to show us what that ministry of Christ, our chief prophet, and what that year of Jubilee looks like, beginning at verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Irrigation and uh, David and Stacy, as you have brought little Jameson for baptism this morning, you've just uh, vowed in that third vow to do all that you can to teach him this doctrine of salvation. Uh, a doctrine that is centered around uh, a person, namely the person of Christ. You've vowed to do all that you can to teach him about Jesus, uh, the one who, as we sang a moment ago, has all authority and power, and yet also, as we heard in our call to worship, the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. Or as we sang from Psalm 72, the one who is both the mighty king who reigns forever, and yet also the one who rescues the poor and the needy. 
The scriptures would have us to emphasize um, both of these things, both the, the power of Jesus, but also the sympathy of Jesus. For either one without the other is an incomplete picture. If we simply teach our children that, that Jesus gets us, that he is kind and, and welcoming, but forget to teach them that he is also Lord and King, as we sang before the sermon, every command of his to be obeyed, we have not been faithful in presenting for them the fullness of who Christ is. Likewise, if we only teach them that he is Lord and King, every command to be obeyed, but do not teach them that he is also gracious and kind, we have also been less than faithful in presenting to them the person of Christ. And and so on this occasion of of the baptism of Jameson, where you've just made these vows, we come to a passage this morning that highlights both of these emphases. That Jesus is both a strong and tender Savior. That he is the the king to whom heaven and earth submit. But he is also the one who kneels at a bedside to lay his hands upon the sick. I want you to notice, um, first of all this morning, the authority of Jesus throughout this passage. And then the sympathy of Jesus. And then finally we'll look at the priority of Jesus of Jesus, as each of these things can hopefully instruct you and instruct all of us in the wonderful task that we have of of teaching God's covenant children about our Lord Jesus. Notice first this theme in our passage of the authority of Christ. It comes up in verse 32 where it says that Jesus taught as one who possessed authority. This is just helpful as you're, as you're reading um, daily in your own Bible reading. If you, you see the same sort of word, theme, idea coming up over and over throughout a passage, that's, that's telling us, um, the, the author here is, is trying to emphasize something. We see it again, verse 36, that as Jesus commanded the, the demon to come out of that man of the synagogue, everyone was amazed and they said, what is this word for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits? And again, we see the authority of Jesus in verse 39, where he simply rebukes the fever of Peter's mother-in-law, and it leaves her. Even as we were just reading, I was struck by verse 41, where he's able to command the demons not to speak about the fact that he is the Messiah, perhaps because it's not yet the time, perhaps because he doesn't want the people getting the wrong idea about who this Messiah is, or perhaps simply because he doesn't want these demons being his his messengers, but even there, as he commands them, they're silent. Over and over throughout this passage, we see Jesus exercising authority in his teaching, in his um, exercising, casting out of demons, and in his healing. We see throughout this passage that Jesus possesses a power that is unparalleled. And Luke wants us to be struck with this power. He wants us to see the authority of Jesus, and like those in the synagogue in verse 32 or verse 36, to be amazed and astonished. Let's look at these three aspects in which we see Christ's authority. First, we see it in his teaching, that Jesus taught as one who possessed authority. This is the same thing that's um, said in Mark chapter 1. It's it's, um, said in Matthew chapter 7, after that Long Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. At the conclusion in verses 28 and 29 of Matthew 7, it says that when Jesus finished these sayings, all of the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had 
authority, but not as their scribes. It's interesting, that's actually a theme that runs throughout Matthew's gospel from beginning to end, even to the the words that we just sang in the Great Commission, where at the very end, in the, the final verses of the gospel, Jesus is again reminding them that he is the one who possesses all authority. As we see this over and over with regards to the teaching ministry of Jesus, that there was a discernible difference between the teaching of Christ and the teaching of his contemporaries. Calvin said that the power of the Spirit shone forth in his preaching with such brightness as to lead to admiration from even cold and irreligious hearers. His word was full of majesty. As Christ spoke, there was an undeniable character to his preaching. For this one who taught them was God himself. The one who is called in John chapter 1, the word incarnate. And so we see, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, throughout that sermon, Jesus is able to say to, to his listeners, you have heard it said, but I say to you, He's able to say this as an infallible interpreter of the word of God because he is the word of God. He is God himself. The one who breathed out those scriptures in the first place. And and so even as the word of the Lord thundered forth from Sinai with with great power, there is a, a power and majesty to the word of Christ that his hearers couldn't deny. He taught as one who had authority. Remember, this was the one back in verse 18 of our our chapter who was sent to preach good news, who was anointed with the Spirit of God, and so he preached with the power of God like no one ever had. We see Christ's authority, first of all, in his teaching and preaching ministry. We see the majesty of his word. Yet it's not only in the preaching of Jesus that we see his power and authority, but we also see the authority of of Jesus and that which accompanied his preaching, the exercising or casting out of demons and in the healing of the sick. We see Christ's power over the demonic realm in verses 33 to 37, again in verse 41, where he, he casts out this unclean spirit of that man at the synagogue. And then again in verse 41, notice it says that uh, many more were brought to him with unclean spirits and he cast out many. So Jesus' authority is not only that of a powerful preacher, but it's a power even over demons. I think I may have said this when we looked at Christ's temptation in the wilderness a few weeks ago, but I think we're to see this event and that event as interconnected. Jesus will say in Luke chapter 11 that it's because he has bound the strong man, Satan, that he's able to cast out his minions. Is he able to cast out demons because he's, he's first bound the strong man, Satan. And it's in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness that we see that first binding or, or victory over Satan. Which just ends with, with it saying that, that Satan then de- departed from there until an opportune time. Satan loses. He's, he is lost. Christ is the victor. And so having defeated the serpent then, now Jesus, throughout the gospel, he, he exercises authority over him by casting out his minions. He has already bound the strong man, and so now he takes away his armor and divides his spoil. That's how Christ describes it 
in Luke 11. He shows his power over Satan by rebuking the demon in verse 35 and saying, be silent, come out of him. Which he does, and it says the people are amazed and they respond and say, what is this word? Or with power and authority, he commands the unclean spirits and they obey. And so reports about Jesus and his authority and power begin to spread all throughout the region. His preaching is authoritative. His ability to cast out demons is authoritative. And then he shows even his power over nature and the healings that we read of in verses 38 through 40. It says that he leaves the synagogue and then he goes into Simon Peter's house. His mother-in-law is ill with a high fever. And it says that he stood over her and he rebuked the fever. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. And, And then it goes on to say that many more who were sick are brought to him with various kinds of diseases and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. We see the scope of Jesus' power that he is able to heal all kinds of diseases. And we see the simple fact of his power that he is able to rebuke this fever in the same way that he rebuked the demon and it leaves her. His word has authority not only over the spiritual realm through preaching and through casting out demons, but also over the physical realm as Christ here shows that he is the one who has come to reverse the curse. He's the one who has come to take away the effects of the fall to heal what's been broken by sin. That's ultimately what Jesus is showing in his healing ministry. It has a couple of of, of primary functions. It, first of all, authenticates the word of the kingdom that he preaches. See that also with the the apostles. Hebrews 2 speaks of that, that the the, uh, mighty deeds that they did authenticated the word. It showed that what they're preaching is true. But not only did the healing ministry of Jesus and the miracles he did authenticate the kingdom that he preached, but it also previewed the full coming of that kingdom. In the healings of Jesus, we, we see a little picture and preview of that time, of that ultimate year of Jubilee when sickness and sin and death will be no more and every tear will be wiped away. Here in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, we see a picture and a preview of the kingdom of heaven of the year of jubilee where the sick and the oppressed will be healed. The way one theologian puts it, we we, we tend to think of the miracles of of Christ as um, interruptions of the natural order. But Jesus' healings are actually restoring what has been interrupted by sin. When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction. It is healing and restoring created beings who were hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings bear witness restores creation to health. Jesus' miracles are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Jesus is here giving a picture of the way that things will be when he perfectly restores creation. The miracles that he performs are previews of the kingdom of heaven. He's here showing that he has authority not only over the spiritual realm, but over the whole created order, which he will restore. 
Jesus is showing himself to be the Messiah who will make all things new. Show that he does indeed have all authority and power both in heaven and on earth. And Luke wants us to see this and to be amazed and astonished at the power of the Son. That our response this morning as we read and hear these things from Luke 4 would be something like the people in that synagogue in Capernaum in verse 32 and verse 36 who said, what is this word? He wants us to be amazed and astonished at the power of Jesus. And yet not only at his power and authority, but notice how this portrait of Christ that Luke is presenting also shows us the sympathy of Jesus. That the power that he exercised proceeds from his heart of compassion. Remember we saw two weeks ago when we looked at the preaching of Jesus in, in that inaugural sermon that it said they, they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. What a statement about the preaching of Jesus. They marveled at, at the words that came from his mouth which were gracious. That's the, the first word that Luke uses in this gospel to describe the preaching ministry of Jesus. He marveled the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And so as he, he exercised his authoritative preaching and teaching ministry as the one with authority, not like the scribes, but as God himself in, in majesty, his word coming in power, Luke nevertheless emphasizes that this idea of, of, of the power of his word also needs to be balanced with understanding the gracious character of the preaching of Christ. At the very start of Jesus' preaching ministry, he emphasizes here the grace of Christ's preaching. And we have to conclude that, that what Luke tells us there in, in verses 19 or 20 of, of Luke 4, that this is not only true of Jesus' first sermon. Because remember, we, we said two weeks ago that, that Luke actually, uh, he rearranges the material and he, he fronts that sermon in Nazareth because he wants it to be the, the lens through which we view the rest of Christ's ministry. That sermon was not Jesus' first sermon chronologically, but Luke moves it to the beginning of the gospel because it so perfectly forecasts the, the shape and character of the rest of Jesus' ministry. His authoritative and, and majestic and powerful teaching and preaching ministry was also one of grace and compassion, where his heart went out to those to whom he ministered because that's who he is, gentle and lowly in heart. Thomas Goodwin said, we are apt to have contrary thoughts of Christ. But he tells us his disposition to prevent such hard thoughts of him and to allure us to him yet more. We are apt to think that he being so holy and majestic is therefore of a severe and sour disposition towards sinners and not able to bear them. But he says, no, I am meek and gentleness is my nature and temper. He is a sympathetic Savior, which we see not only in the preaching ministry of Jesus, but we see especially in this middle account of, of Peter's mother-in-law being healed. Well, I think it's helpful to compare these verses, verses 38 through 40, with what just came before them in 33 to 37, where, where Jesus' authority, even over the demonic realm, shows him to be a, a cosmic Savior. 
And yet against that backdrop, the cosmic savior of verses 33 through 37, Luke wants us to see he is also the domestic savior of verses 38 and 39. Dale Ralph Davis says he is the Christ who conquers the evil one and yet the Christ who provides in the home. He works in the public place but also enters into private need. He is in the synagogue but also in the sick room. Carrying on a public ministry but not allergic to private troubles. Jesus both quells the raging of demons and takes care of mothers-in-law. He is the cosmic savior casting out demons yet also the compassionate savior kneeling at a bedside. Christ sympathizes with sufferers, which we see yet further in verse 40 where it says that that all of those who had any who were sick, they, they brought them to Jesus, and it says that he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. He didn't turn them away, but had time for them. And even though this one whose word possesses such power, as we just saw in the verses right before this, even though he could have healed that entire multitude in a single word, don't we, don't we see something of the, the gracious disposition of Jesus in the fact that he touches each one of them individually? He, he shows his compassion and love by laying hands on each one individually and healing them. He is the tender Savior who draws near to his people, as we'll see this afternoon in Psalm 34, who is near to the brokenhearted. He comes and touches them. Luke wants us to be impressed with not only the power of this cosmic Savior, but the sympathy of this very personal Savior who draws near to us even as he's done this morning through baptism. Where though his word is is certainly enough, he wants to show us and wants to show little Jameson something of his kindness. And so he welcomes him to this baptismal font where Christ says, even as this water washes the dirt from your body, so I will wash you with my blood. I've come even for such as you, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Even helpless little infants, even sick mothers-in-law who Christ draws near to in grace. It reminds us he is not only the one to whom all authority and power belong, but he is also the one who is grace incarnate, a sympathetic savior who has come to use that power to save. Indeed, by the end of the gospel, to lay down his life for sinners. Luke wants us to see the power and authority of Jesus. He wants us to see the sympathy of Jesus. And then last, he wants us also to see that the priority of Jesus' ministry so that we don't merely think that Christ has come to heal and and cast out demons or so that we don't think he's come merely to baptize. Luke shows us in verses 42 through 44, Jesus' priority. This really shouldn't surprise us after what we saw last time that Jesus' priority is preaching. Notice how it says that, that When it was day then, that is the next day, that Jesus got up and he went to a desolate place, presumably to pray. And then the people came and they sought him, they came to him, they would have kept him from leaving them, but then Jesus said, no, I must go and preach the gospel of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
Here, Jesus again reminds us why he was sent not merely to heal, not merely for, for mercy ministry or bedside care, but to preach. I must go and preach the good news. This is why I was sent. And here Jesus gives us another reminder then of of the primacy of preaching. And what was true of his ministry then remains true for the church today. Remember, we we made that point a couple of weeks ago. This is volume one of Luke's two-volume account. Volume two in in the book of Acts is going to emphasize this same priority of the preaching uh, ministry in in the, the work of the church. Luke is here emphasizing for us the primacy of preaching. Almost 160 years ago, J.C. Ryle said an expression like what we read in verse 33 ought to silence forever the foolish remarks that are sometimes made against preaching. The mere fact that the eternal Son of God undertook the office of a preacher should satisfy us that preaching is a most valuable means of grace. In every age of the church, it has been God's principal instrument for the awakening of sinners and the edifying of saints. Jesus' priority was to preach, and so that should remain the church's priority today. A mercy ministry like that that Jesus carries out or supernatural ministry like we see in verse 41, these are not the main thing. They are subservient to his primary task, of the proclamation of the words. The content of which we see in verse 43 is the gospel of the kingdom. It says he he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, which which proclaims him to be the the all-powerful king we see in this passage. And yet also the gracious and sympathetic king who draws near to sinners and sufferers as he does in this passage to save. I mean, you could say this picture, this passage gives us a a sort of picture or illustration to fill out the content of his preachings. It says in verse 44 that he went about preaching and in all the synagogues he was proclaiming himself to be the all-powerful king will vanquish the kingdom of darkness and yet also the gracious and sympathetic king who draws near to sinners. This is the gospel of the king that Jesus' utmost priority was to preach. That we must proclaim also preaching that the person and work of Jesus who is both the majestic king with all authority and the sympathetic savior of sinners. Luke wants us to see both of these realities and wants us to preach both of these realities so that we would neither go the way of thinking that Jesus is a weak savior whose commands can be disregarded or a cold and distant king who cares nothing for us. Luke is is seeking to correct both of these errors and also the error of any philosophy of ministry that would prioritize anything above the preaching of this king and his kingdom. This passage speaks to us about the shape of the church's ministry. It speaks to us about the Christ that we proclaim to the world around us in that ministry. And then to bring it back to the baptism that we saw earlier in our service, it speaks to us also about the Christ that we proclaim even to our children. 
to David and Stacey, if I could give you just a, a few applications from this passage about the, the way that you instruct little Jameson. I'm working backwards from the end of the passage. Um, we see, first of all, in, in verses 43 and, and 44, a reminder to make your priorities for Jameson Jesus priorities. If Jesus says that the most important thing is to teach the gospel of the kingdom, that means even in raising little Jameson, that should be your utmost priority. I'm teaching him the good news of the kingdom of God. Every day, every time you open the word of him, every Lord's day, as you bring him to the place where that, that word goes forth in power, you make Jesus' priority your priority in raising this covenant child that he's given you. And second, um, as you, you do that, you balance both of these things that Luke shows us here about Christ's character. As you, you teach them the gospel, uh, teach him the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the king, you make sure that in your presentation of the king to him, you show him that he is the gentle and lowly saved, the sympathetic heart towards sinners and sufferers who draws near to them in grace and, and touches them. You make sure that Jameson understands the grace of Christ, which Luke here pictures as both the cosmic savior, but also the domestic savior who welcomes little children into his arms and blesses them. You show him the gracious heart of Christ also in, in your own love toward him, as well as in the content of what you teach him about Jesus even as you remind him of this baptism today where Christ condescends in grace to cleanse him. You teach him about the sympathetic heart of our gracious Savior. Then also you teach him about Jesus' majestic authority. That this one who draws near in grace, this one who is so gracious and merciful and compassionate is also just and holy. And calls Jameson to live before him in faithfulness. We need to teach our children both of, of these truths, of, of the gracious heart of Christ on the one hand and also of, of the power and authority of Christ on the other. And then lastly, even as you teach him these things, you pray that God would not only give him the knowledge of Christ's person and work, but also the grace to respond to it in faith as this passage also gives us a warning of, of the possibility of head knowledge uh, without heart faith. I didn't note this earlier, but in verse 34 of our passage, I think it's quite interesting, where it says that the demons recognize Jesus as the, the Holy One of God. They recognize that He is the Christ. They recognize that He is the One who in Luke chapter 1 was conceived in, in holiness, made holy by the Spirit who condescended into the womb of Mary. They recognize that He is the Messiah. And yet they fail to act on that knowledge in faith. They make a confession of truth and yet not a confession of faith. And James, in James chapter 2, he holds up this sort of thing, even with demons, as a warning for us not to know and say true things about Jesus and yet have no saving interest in him. Ryle says, let us beware of an unsanctified knowledge of Christianity where we know the Bible intellectually and, and have no doubt of the truth of its contents. We have our memories well stored of its leading texts and we're able to talk glibly about its leading doctrines, but it has no influence over our hearts, and our wills, and our consciences. Ryle says we may in reality be nothing better than the devils. 
never content us to know religion with our heads only. This is a warning that Luke is here giving for all of us not to just come and, and hear and then walk out and leave being unchanged by the things that we have heard, hearing about Christ and, and knowing about him in our heads but not loving him with our hearts. This is, this is a warning that he gives for all of us, especially as parents. It's a reminder of the need to not only teach our children about the doctrine of Christ but to pray that God would also give them the love of Christ. To not be content to know him with their heads only, but also with their hearts, which ultimately leads us to our knees in prayer. That we and our children so respond to this doctrine of Christ and his person and work in faith. May God so give us the grace to respond to our strong and tender Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Luke's beautiful portrayal of your son, who is both the Lord of heaven and earth, who by the word of his power casts out demons, heals the sick, and preaches with authority. But he also uses that authority to minister his grace to us and save. He is a gentle and gracious Savior who is willing to be kept all night with the sick in Capernaum and to lay his hands on each of them, to kneel at the bedside of Peter's mother-in-law, even to condescend by grace in baptism, to show little Jameson his gracious heart, the same gracious heart that led him all the way to the cross where he bled and died, that he might wash us of our sins by his blood as pictured in baptism. Lord, we pray you would give David and Stacy grace as they teach little Jameson about this Savior. And we pray that his response would be not merely a response of intellectual assent to what they teach him, but of wholehearted faith. That this strong and tender Savior of Luke chapter 4 is his Savior. May that be the response of each of us and our children and of the world around us to whom we proclaim this Savior. We pray in Jesus' name.